Hey friends, uh, welcome to Easter Sunday here at Every Nation. I'm so glad you decided to join us. And I have the privilege this morning of getting to unpack some scripture for us um, with two iPads. So I don't know if that makes it twice as good, but uh, we're going to work through some scripture together that I think will be helpful as we try to understand the, uh, the importance of the Easter message. And as I was preparing for uh, this morning, um, I had this thought that I felt as though the Holy Spirit sort of put in my mind. And uh, my spirit felt, felt as though he said, you know, help, let's, help us uh, hear the Easter story as opposed to just know more about it. Help us hear it. Help us hear it. And that word kind of confused me a little bit because I'm thinking, pretty sure they're going to have the volume up on their TV. Like, we're going to hear it. But it was, no, 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 let's, uh, let's hear it in our hearts today. And that kind of <laughs> was in the back of my mind. And it, it kind of, I don't want to say soured, but it definitely flavored uh, as I was sort of reading through some classic Eastery sort of scriptures to unpack. And it was bugging me because I felt as though that I was reading these things and not hearing them in my heart. Uh, and it started to trouble me. I'm like, these are the, these standalone verses are the best news of all time. And something in my heart is not able to celebrate. Something in my heart is not able to, it's not, it's not grabbing it in my heart. And so I started to feel more and more convicted of like, Lord, what is going on in my heart that this is, that I can't speak out of celebration and joy? Uh, I'll, I'll read a few of them to you. They're just fantastic verses. <laughs> John seventeen three says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom, you, whom you've sent. Salvation is knowing the God of the universe intimately. Like, it's mind-blowing. Uh, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is so committed to love, and all of love, 100% mercy and 100% justice, that he takes both upon himself so that we can be with him and so that all our sin can be paid for, and not, but not at the expense of justice. Like, it's just incredibly profound. Romans 8, uh, 11. If the spirit of him who, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this payment of sin creates no separation between us and God so that we are literally temples of the Holy Spirit in God's presence. And then we get to live out of that empowered place, loving other people and advancing his kingdom by his spirit. Crazy. One last one, uh, John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so hear and believe and eternal life. I'm staring at words like death, life, eternal life, salvation, love. And, um, you know, I don't know, maybe you guys have this moment where you have this blank feeling where it's like, Lord, convict my heart. What is, what is a block? And I just felt as though, that uh, he was letting me feel something both personally and also on behalf of us corporately. I'm like, my church feels this way right now. My church feels as though it's hard to celebrate. And I just, I feel emotionally even thinking about it because that leaves me with a little bit more of an unfortunate job is that we have to, we have to unpack what about the truth of the gospel is not rendering our hearts with conviction and celebration. So perhaps it's not more of a classic Easter sermon. We're not going to go through the resurrection text. Instead, we're going to look at um, how do we hear this? 
How do we hear this in a way that causes us to celebrate in the way that we should be celebrating? And I hope that'll be helpful for you. So um, the idea here is that I'm going to invite Jesus to come and speak to our hearts. He's the only one that can convict us. My words, you know, at best I can say interesting things, <laughs> but uh, Jesus can convict us. So I wanted, I started thinking, okay, Lord, what do you want to say? And what came to mind was, um, uh, conveniently, we have this book called Revelation that contains in it some letters that the Apostle John wrote on Jesus' behalf to the early church. They're very fascinating because Jesus speaks in the first person to the early church. And uh, I thought what would be interesting is to go through what Jesus' heart for his bride is. And I think that there's something we can learn here that is, is cause for much conviction and much celebration. And those things go hand in hand. We only can celebrate what God has done to the degree that we understand its importance and the extremity of it. And so the goal of today is to push both extremes out of going, wow, we need Jesus. And I am so glad that he came and died for us and raised from the dead. So I'm just going to pray and invite him to speak. Lord, uh, you're living and active and you're alive. You've risen. And so I invite you to speak to us this morning through your word again. And that this letter to this church in the first century would impact your church today because you're the same God who's still who's, who's alive and still speaking. And we are the same church, struggling with the same things and working through the same stuff. So we humble ourselves before you and ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So the letter that we're going to be going through, it's recorded in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And uh, it's, we're going to just go through it kind of line by line here. It's about eight verses and pull some, some truths out of this and see what Jesus would have to say to us. So uh, starting in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? So the church we're going to be looking at today is Laodicea. Uh, by the way, to the angel of the church, just, it probably just means like to the pastor, <laughs> to the messenger, uh, write this in Laodicea. Now, something you need to know, know about Laodicea is that it's really, really wealthy. <laughs> it's a very affluent city. And it's kind of the, one of the reasons why I wanted to go through this letter. It's because it parallels our society a lot. Uh, we don't have much need. Uh, there's lots of... We're rich. <laughs> by, by worldly standards, we are rich here in our society. And this hasn't, bowed, this hasn't done the church in Laodicea very much good. Um, because this particular letter of the seven written to those churches, is the one that doesn't really have any good news in it. It has lots of truth. It has lots of um, good news in that it, it, it talks about how we repent and how we find Jesus again. Um, but it doesn't have like any pats on the back. So sorry about that this morning, but it just pertains too well to <laughs> what I think we need to be discussing. So uh, continuing in verse 14, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is Jesus introducing himself in the first person. I love how he calls himself the Amen. Uh, I'm the final word. You know, he's, he's establishing his authority at the beginning of this letter. Um, I love the idea. You know, parents, you should try that with your five-year-old sometime. Just introduce yourself as the Amen in their life. Like, I'm the final word on how your life goes. But that's kind of what he's doing. <clears throat> uh, so, verse 15. I know your deeds. Now, this, this is kind of, 
had kind of a funny image when I, when I saw this. So Jesus introduces himself as the, in the first person speaking directly to the church. And then he goes, I know your deeds. And what, uh, what, it, what was conjured to mind was like, you guys know in elementary school or high school when you kind of space off and look to the side and then your, your teacher notices that you're spaced out and then addresses you, addresses you personally, but it doesn't register really. And then your buddy nudges you and then all at once you're realizing like, you know, the, 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 your name was used from the front and then that took a second to buffer. And then that clicks at the same time as your buddy nudges you and you're like, what, and what, what did I miss <laughs> that moment? And it's almost, I, I feel like, uh, Jesus is doing that where he's like, I'm Jesus. Hello. Uh, I know your deeds. And he's like pointing us out and not just corporately as the church, as you, like, I'm really praying that God speaks to you this morning personally. Maybe I get to be your, I get to be your buddy who like nudges you. And so we go, wow, okay, what? Sorry, what did I miss? So that's kind of, I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, continuing here in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither, so it's not great news, sorry. Um, that you are neither cold nor hot. So uh, cold here refers to uh, reject. So cold would be, you understand what's going on. Uh, in what Jesus wants to do. Um, you are aware of his offer for salvation and kingship and rulership of your life. And you just say, no, thank you. That's too scary. I don't want to do that. Uh, and that's an option. And so then we have hot, which is zeal. So it's a little more obvious. We're burning with passion for what God's done. So cold, aware of what Jesus has offered and reject it outright hot is I love you. I'm passionate for you. I'm pursuing you with my whole heart. So the, things get interesting though. When, 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 uh, when he says, I, I wish you were either one or the other. So that's interesting because why would God ever want us to be cold? Well, this is interesting because, uh, what happens here is that what Jesus is saying is that what I've done demands a response in which your heart is engaged. Like you, you can say no, but, but, but engage your heart and know what's going on. Like wrestle with it. Uh, because it's offensive that what I've done is would ever be shrugged off. It should either offend you and you should reject it, or it should be the best news of all time. And you, and you should be zealous for it. So that's interesting. Why would God prefer that extremity? Well, I think it's because he wants to, us to engage our hearts this morning. And this would be my, my invitation to you, is that as, as we unpack these things, as we work through the scripture and continue in it, I, I would advise you to be one or the other. It's a very strange thing to invite you to be cold, but the offer here is, is listen with interest. Listen with a keen heart. Because this isn't a joke. It's not a lecture on something interesting. These, this is life and death we're talking about here, like we were reading in those early verses that I, that I mentioned. So, it's verse 16. Because you are lukewarm. Now, lukewarm, we need to stop for a second. Uh, uh, lukewarm here, it's, it's, it's interesting because I did a little bit of research on Laodicea uh, and... Um, historians and biblical theologians that have this kind of interesting theory on why 
you know, God would have used lukewarm language for that city in particular. And it might just be coincidence, but uh, I still think it's interesting that um, Laodicea was supplied uh, by a hot spring that was like five miles away. And they built an aqueduct where all the, all the water would have entered the city. And the idea here is that hot water, bacteria doesn't grow in it. And cold water, bacteria doesn't grow in it nearly as easily. But lukewarm water is just festers and bacteria grows in it. So it would have been a, it would have been a constant problem for Laodiceans. They would be aware of the issues of stagnant lukewarm water. I'm sure they had ways of solving it and uh, addressing the issue, but it, it would have been a common like, oh, lukewarm, shoot, I know what lukewarm water is. It makes you sick, which, uh, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus literally saying, you're making him sick. Like there's something about a, a lukewarm heart that is a uh, that is a place in which something grows that literally makes Jesus sick. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does an apathetic, lukewarm, and like neither passionate nor angry, like what is that lukewarm, apathetic? heart foster and why does jesus why is it so nauseating to him well it tells us in verse 17 it says you say i am rich i have acquired wealth and do not need a thing what this lukewarm nature is talking about is a self-reliance and what a lukewarm disposition breeds is what the Bible calls pride. A lukewarm, a, a lukewarm faith, an apathetic faith, is the perfect breeding ground for being satisfied with what the world would have to offer. Being self-reliant and being filled with pride and thinking that we can do things on our own. Because our world has become less extreme, it's become less, it's become more manageable and all the more feasible for us to attain to greatness on our own. And the pride of life loves no better vessel than a lukewarm heart. So, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is where the rub really comes. Because the Lord is, hates pride. Hates it. It makes him sick. Self-reliance makes him want to vomit. It's extreme language for Jesus to be using here. Uh, Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Wow. So, um, why? Why, is, why does the Lord detest pride so bad? Why does it make him so sick? Is it just because he's, he's offended that you think you can put on your little crown and challenge his authority? Is he insecure? that uh, you're shaking your fist at him? Uh, is he just annoyed and frustrated that this would, you know, like kind of conjures images of God being insecure, right? <laughs> Which of course he isn't. So here's what's really going on. The reason why the Lord detest, detests pride so bad is that the proud can't receive. It says it here, uh, I am rich and do not need a thing, right? This is what the lukewarm people said. I don't need a thing. Pride has grown in my heart. I have no need. And to this, God is angry because he's jealous for your love 
And he's aware that things aren't as comfy and lukewarm as you'd like to think they are. He's trying to save your life. And so he detests the pride in our hearts because it blocks our ability to receive all that he would have for us, which is a lot, by the way, like eternal life. <laughs> I think that that's the holy grail of things we'd ever want. Not only just eternal life, eternal life with him where he's in charge and there's no more pain or death or crime. Like some people will be like, well, I don't want eternal life. This world sucks. It's like, yeah, but the eternal life he's offering you, he's actually in charge of and it's going to be perfect. <laughs> it's eternal life in a perfect world where God's in charge. Like this is a great deal. And so God's going, your pride is going to prevent you from being able to receive salvation that allows us to be together forever, which is what you were designed for, which you may or may not know, but trust me, I made you. This is what's going on. So you can see why God says, I detest the proud and it's not going to go unpunished. Like I have to punish you. That's, there's no greater offense to the cosmos. There's no greater uh, offense to what God has designed and what he wants to do. And he wants to be with you. He made you to love you and be with you. And so if we kind of go, mm, yeah, nah, it's, a, it's a troubling thing. So uh, I want to read 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. It, it, says, uh, it, says, it says it well. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So here it's saying, not only does God not, it's not that he just doesn't like pride or that it offends him and that he wishes it wasn't there. Uh, God opposes the proud. And he built these things called churches where we got elders and, you know, younger people that need to submit to, you know, broken human leaders. And uh, he's desperate for us to have any excuse to humble our hearts. And the church in lots of ways was, was built to humble you. It's probably one of its number one <laughs> like functions is that if you manage to if you manage to be part of a multicultural, multi-generational church with Jesus as the king, that's gonna be a very humbling experience. So, you know, if you're part of our church, you're welcome. It's probably humbled you greatly. And uh, but that's one of the functions because God's opposing the proud, not just not just angry at the proud, opposing them. And it's so loving. For him to oppose our pride, for to actively be against us in our self-reliance. So, because we're dead in sin, hey, we're just dead in it. Not only are we dead in it, but if we're proud, we think we're okay, which is like a double whammy. And when when I realize that I'm not only like dead in my sin, but also like okay with it somehow and not aware of its potential, uh, like its cataclysmic potential, uh, I, you get on your knees and go, God, oppose me, somehow oppose me, oppose my pride, oppose whatever would block me from, from being aware of how much I need you. It becomes the prayer. And this has been my prayer over this last year, because if there's one way to sum up the last year of my life, it would be humbled. I feel super, super humbled, uh, by many things in life. Uh, I've been realizing how proud I am, how much lacking in zeal I am, all the while blaming God for not showing up in ways that I wished and I imagined he would. Like, why, why, why don't I feel like I, I can't celebrate Easter in the way that I should be able to? Why don't you meet me in my quiet times in the way that I imagined you would? Why do I feel like your power and presence is absent from my life? All the while, like, especially looking back after this, from before this year, just going, oh, that makes sense. I was so proud and arrogant and I was so self-reliant. 
and God opposed me with his distance and his lack of... <laughs> God shows me so much favor and grace. I could preach a whole other sermon on how he's given me a whole bunch of things I don't deserve. But for all intents and purposes right now, he also opposed lots of my flesh. And I am so grateful. And this last year has been a bit of an uncovering of my heart going, oh, wow, 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 wow. Wow, um, he's been answering my prayer of, Lord, you got to oppose me because I'm missing something. So what's so great about this, guys, is that as we're aware of our desperation, he just like rushes into that moment. And he's, this past year, he's been making me really desperate. There's been more people. To, I got married this last year. There's been someone to love that's, I mean, it's been a massive gift. And I'm just desperate to learn how to love in this brand new way. Uh, our church, I'm just more and more in love with it and what it's capable of doing and, and my hopes and longings for what God uses our spiritual family for. And you just see your inadequacy. I'm like, God, you got to humble me. I'm like so desperate for you, which is kind of what this next verse is about, actually. Um, is 17b. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Thanks, Jesus. You know, this is, we said, I used this verse a few weeks ago when I was preaching, and I just thought it was so funny. It felt like just like punching in the gut, like pitiful, poor, poor blind. It's like you could have just say three, not five things. But uh, it's, it's this driving hope of the point that you are, you know, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, you know, naked, check, check, check. And you, you are those things. Jesus speaking in the first person. He's trying to help us see how desperate we are. And he's got a pretty good vantage point, I would say. So it's like, you're proud. You think you're rich and you're actually naked. You think you have no need and you're poor by my economy and the kingdom that I'm building. Gripping stuff. So here's where things, uh, well, I'm reminded when I see this, it's like our situation is so dire without Jesus. Like this is what's going on. We're wretched. wretched. We can't, there is no amount of self-reliance or pride that can ever overcome the world. Uh, only Jesus can do that. And he's saying, look, without me, this is, this is who you are. And our situation is so dire and it puts the fear of the Lord in me because this is what it reminds me of is that God hates sin. He hates it so much. And, uh, and we, sometimes we think God's a little extreme. Hey, like you're really confronting my pride pretty hard here. Like, oh my goodness. He's going, yeah, uh, your sin is going to separate us forever. And I must be rid of it so that I can be with you. I must be. Like I died on the cross to be rid of it. I hate it. I hate sin. And I, and I think that that's healthy for us to know about God. You know, we always we say God is love so much and it gets awkward to talk about him hating things because oftentimes we think that love and hate can't coexist. They sure can. Love and selfishness can't. But love and hate for sure can. God hates our sin. He hates what robs us of love. And it really puts the fear of the Lord in me when he tells me, you know, you are wretched. You are. And then I can be offended, my pride, or I can go, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Thank you for pointing that out. So things do take a bit of a turn here for some solutions, thankfully. Thanks for joining me here at the bottom of the pit. Verse 18 continues. It says, I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined with fire, so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve, to put, which is like ointment, to put on your eyes so you can see. 
what, what, what he's saying here is like, buy from me, he says, right? Buy from me. I am the source of what you need in this economy. Just me, only me. Buy from me, Jesus. Uh, this is where yourself, not from yourself, not from pride, not from the riches you think you have. You're pitiful, poor, blind, naked. So come, I have all of these things for you. And they're all free, by the way, if you humble yourself and, and come get them from me. They're all like, I think it's funny that he uses the word buy. I think it's a little tongue in cheek. But we know that God's gift is, is, is free and it's salvation and it's a free gift. Come, come, come get it from me, he's saying. So what are these things? Uh, gold refined with fire. The gold here is faith. Peter uses this gold refined with fire as a way of describing faith elsewhere in scripture. Um, you know, white clothes to wear. Uh, this is talking about forgiveness. This is Jesus saying, you can't pay for your sin. I need to cover you. I need to give you white linens. I love this image of pure white, pure white linen that is spotless and blameless, like a wedding dress, you know? I want to give you that so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And this is what we're talking about this morning. Lord, help us see. So what is the salve? And I want to offer you a one way of interpreting that this morning. And I think that it's conviction. That the Holy Spirit comes along and says, let me put, let me help you see with like a spiritual sight what's going on. Let me convict your heart of what it needs. So I love the flow of this. Hey, God, God says we're arrogant and proud. <laughs> he says that we're wretched and we're in desperate need. And then he says, I have everything you need for you to see it and everything you need to be rid of it. I, I can be the source of your salvation. So maybe, uh, maybe this morning you feel uh, uh, like your heart's a little blind and you need some conviction and some salve. And I would invite you to, if you're feeling convicted and you're feeling as though like the Lord's trying to speak to you, which was my whole prayer for this morning, I would invite you to press into that moment and it's probably confronting your pride. And conveniently, verse 19 goes on to talk about this and it says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So love and rebuke and discipline aren't contrasted. Like this is love is rebuke and love is discipline. In fact, he only rebukes and disciplines those that he loves. So we can take heart this morning that if you feel rebuked and if you feel as though you've been lashing on and pride in some way, that only those whom he loves, he brings to this moment. Like you're here listening to this because he loves you and he wants to set you free and he wants to discipline you. Because he loves you, he's trying to save you. He's trying to oppose your pride because he's so loving. What a good God we serve. Uh, this is uh, what I love here is that um, where it says, uh, so in the face of rebuke and discipline, our only, well, we could be proud or we can be, uh, or we can repent. But here it says, so be earnest and repent. And the word earnest here really ties it back to the lukewarm thing for me. And this is the whole theme of the letter is, 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 Jesus is saying you're lukewarm and this lukewarm attitude of shrugging off the reality of who I am is breeding pride in your heart. So come repent, but repent earnestly. Come clamor, like be zealous, hot for, for who I am. Of course, there's always the opportunity to reject it. And God leaves that open to us. But he's inviting us to earnestly repent with our hearts. And being earnest is a, is a humiliating thing. Like, uh, I don't know. Oh, this might be a tangent. I, I just thought of this right now, but I, I think about, um, I never watched the, the sitcom much, but, but uh, Friends, maybe many of you have watched Friends. I never watched it all that much, but, but uh, I read an article on it one time, and it says that like, one of the cruxes of the show is that the character Ross 
is this earnest person and everything he does, he does with excitement and he's kind of annoying and it's a great character. I think it's, Ross is a great character in that show and he does everything with earnest and it's, he's always passionate about stuff and the whole show is built on all his friends shooting him down. <laughs> and this article was about how friends is the worst and whatever, but uh, for that reason, because it's like a cultural commentary on how people can't be great and be earnest and be themselves because we always cut them down. But there is something about being earnest that's a little humiliating, you know, like when we, when we feel desperate, we just mitigate it and we go, yeah, I mean, like I'm kind of desperate. Like I get a good sermon this morning, Jonathan, thank you. But we still soften it all. But an earnest repentance is embarrassing. <laughs> it's not, it's not soft. It's not lukewarm. It's, uh, I need something. I'm earnestly repenting before my father, which is amazing. So what is the result? What is the result of an earnest repentance? And I just love how the very next sentence is, here I am. You earnestly repent. And then just like seconds later, Jesus is just immediately there in that space. Here I am. Uh, not even, I stand at the door and knock. I get this image of us, you know, wrestling with whether we want to repent or not. And we're just dealing with our pride and we're kind of walking in one direction, just kind of fighting it, wrestling with it. And Jesus is like right here, you know, just kind of following us one step behind. And he's standing at the door and knocking, which I just have this image of him knocking on the back of our heads. Just being like, I'm, I'm right here. Not like an annoying way, maybe more of a tap on the shoulder. And, uh, and then when we turn and earnestly repent, which is uh, the definition of repentance is turning away from something and towards him, towards relationship, away from sin and pride and self-reliance and towards him, he's just immediately there. Like here I am, like it deserves, it has an exclamation mark for crying out loud. Jesus puts an exclamation mark on his presence on the other side of repentance. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. So here we have, hears my voice and opens the door, but and opens the door is what I want to draw our relationship, uh, draw our uh, attention to. We can hear his voice. But when we hear his voice, sometimes it's rebuke and sometimes it's not what we wanted to hear. And sometimes it confronts our pride. And sometimes his voice is, is, uh, is not what we wanted to hear, but it's always kind and it's always loving and it's always for our benefit. That's truth. And so when we open the door, when we hear the words that maybe we don't want to hear because they confront us, but when we open the door, that's what repentance looks like. We're opening the door is almost like turning around, right? Like now I'm here with you. I opened the door and this takes humility. Because now you're not assessing what he said. You're trusting who he is. And when he says, you're, maybe he comes to you this morning like he did for me this past year and said, you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And then I have a choice to go like, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to open the door and repent because I want you. Like only you can save me. This is repentance. It's open, hearing and, and opening the door. And of course what happens is we get to eat. Right, Nate? We just get to eat. Isn't that great? What are we so afraid of? We get to eat with that person and they with me. Like, do you see God's heart here? There's food and fellowship with the living God. This is, this is our big scary salvation call is come eat with your father and know him. Be with him. That is just so worth celebrating. I know it's kind of solemn the way I'm speaking, but it's just, 
I don't, that's such good news. So there's kind of one more little chunk here that I think is a great place for us to land. And uh, I just think this is really profound. Um, I'll read verse 21 and then I'll unpack it. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. That's, (laughs) that's insane. Uh, To the one who is victorious, this is Jesus speaking to us. If you're victorious, whatever that means, we're going to talk about what that means in a second. But if you're victorious, you will, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. That's wild. So first, let's, we need to talk about victorious. Uh, to, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right just as I was victorious. So this victorious and this victorious are the same, right? Because it's just as I was. Same victory. So God is inviting us to be victorious in the same way that he was victorious through Jesus. Or yeah, speaking in the first person, right? Just as I was, it's so epic when Jesus speaks in the first person, just as I was victorious. So what is, what is that victory? Uh, in order to do a good job of explaining that, we're, we're going to use Philippians 2, 5 to 11, because I think it's the best, it's my favorite chunk of scripture for one, so maybe a little, a little biased, but it's also the, the, I think the best description of what Jesus' victory really is. For sure in the context of what we're talking about today. So I'm going to read this. this is Philippians 2, 5 to, 5 to 11. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Which is another nod to the fact that we get to have the same kind of victory as him. Who, being in very nature God, speaking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So there's no pride. There's no self-interest. No self-reliance in Jesus' heart. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, this is the victory now, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What is this victory? This victory is humility. That's what he's writing us into. Uh, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Jesus was obedient unto death. And then he says, you get to have the same victory. Why don't you come be obedient to your father unto death just like me? Come be obedient to him. Come follow his race. Come read his word like I did. Come trust him like I did. Now, of course, there was no pride in Jesus' heart, which is what lets him to, he didn't have any sin, which is what lets him atone for ours. That's important to note. So his death wasn't so much a death of pride, it was a death of our pride on our behalf. (laughs) It's all very profound. But the mechanics of what he invites us into is the same. He says, I was I humbled myself before my father and I was obedient to him and I trusted him. And this, that is what victory is both for me, Jesus speaking, and it's what I invite you into. Now, I've made a way for that. I've modeled it for you, for one, and my presence gets to empower you to do so. So you've got some help, you know, you've got, you've got some help. That, um, so praise God for that. But the path is the same. The path is, is to humility. And when the Holy Spirit knocks on your and my heart saying, obey, obey our Father. Like, obey our Father. Listen to him. 
He's knocking. Uh, he just he just wants your heart. He just wants you to not be reliant on yourself or this world. He just wants your pride to die. So come be obedient to your father unto the death of your pride and your self-reliance. And then we get to, and then he says, sit with me on my throne. Uh, and I sat, as I sat down with the father on his throne, like he's inviting us to enjoy the same relationship that he has with his father, which it says in John elsewhere, where Jesus wants us to have the same relationship with God that he has with him, which is what eternal life is. We, it, it's not like get, God's going to give us eternal life. He is eternal life. Come enjoy the relationship I have with my father. And all that it costs you is everything <laughs> that this world would have to offer. It costs you all of yourself, just like it costs me all of myself to love you. I invite you for it to cost all of yourself to love him. It's good news. It's the way. It's the way in which this works. <clears throat> Proverbs 22.4 <clears throat> says this, Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. I want life. And riches and honor too. Why not? But his riches and his honor and his throne and his economy. And so he says, humility is the fear of the Lord. So maybe this morning we need a little bit of a dose of the fear of the Lord. And we need the Easter resurrection story to go, oh, dear God, uh, would I tremble before you in your power and what this accomplished? And may I not be lukewarm. May my lukewarm attitude not be a breeding ground for pride. But Father, would you make me zealous for you? Would you make me humble like you? And I wanted to read this letter for kind of one other reason is because it's addressed, it speaks in the first person, which I just think is a really nice nod to the fact that Jesus is alive and he's speaking. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you this morning. And he's inviting you to live forever with him and enjoy the relationship with God that you were designed to have. And he made a way. And he's risen, and we get to follow him. He's, he's risen, and we get to follow him into his way of life and freedom and wholeness. And he takes us by the hand, and he comforts us, and we sit and dine and eat with him the whole way along as we love and as we trust him. I'm so glad we have a risen Savior that we follow and have a relationship with who helps us every day, helps us to crucify our flesh, and helps us to take up our cross and follow him. He's right there on the other side of repentance and humility. So that's what I invite you into today so that we can celebrate. That is a lot to celebrate. Eternal life with our Father that designed us and knows us best meets all of our needs. So I feel solemn, but I feel so celebratory at the same time, which I think was my prayer for today. <clears throat> that the depth of what we're celebrating would really rest on our hearts. And so the last verse says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Whoever. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Lord, whoever has ears to this morning, let them hear. Whoever has ears. Whoever has humbled their hearts, and has ears to hear your voice, would you let them hear? I pray this ancient prayer that you prayed for your church, that your spirit would speak to our church and would comfort us 
We just long to know you. And so, Father, we come before you and repent. Whether this is the first time we've heard about Jesus or whether this is the thousandth time, the journey is the exact same as we come before you and go, Oh, God, save me in my desperation. And I humble my heart before you and I quake with holy fear. I thank you for hating sin. Thank you for opposing my pride. Thank you for being my Savior. And I choose to remember that this morning and on behalf of my friends who are with me here. I pray that whoever of them would have ears to hear the depth of how much you long to be with them, no matter the cost. I pray that their spirit would hear that and that we would repent in our hearts, not just our minds. And I pray that it would be cause for much celebration. Amen. Thank you.